Good evening. Good evening. Happy to be with you guys again. Uh, unfortunately, it's another bad reason, though. Uh, Scott is sick, and so is Bo. So be praying for them. I don't, I don't think it's anything serious, but, you know. <laughs> hey, Scott made it through a kidney stone. He can make it through this, you know. And so, uh, but we'll be praying for him, and hopefully he'll be uh, ready to go on Sunday. Um, Tonight, I have the pleasure of having the college ministry in with us over there, and that's really awesome. It's always great to have the whole church come together. It's always a a beautiful thing. And uh, what we've been going through in the college ministry is we've been going through Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, which is the Old Testament law that God gave to his people. In the middle of this book is a very controversial uh, chapter, Leviticus chapter 18, and so we, uh, me and Bo, have been taking a couple weeks to go through Leviticus 18 because of its uh, sensitive material and because of its um, controversial material that's within it. Uh, but essentially what Leviticus 18 is, for those of you guys who haven't read it, it's, it's the law for the sexual regulation of the people of God, right? And um, no matter what we believe today, uh, there's a lot of uh, debate about Leviticus 18, but no matter what we, we say about it, the truth is, is that scripturally, Leviticus 18 is still the sexual standard for the church today. Um, some people have debated that, some people have looked at it differently, but everything that we see in Leviticus 18 is reiterated for us in the new covenant that we have before God. And so uh, we wanted to be very sensitive with it, though, uh, and take our time. And what we've been focusing on for the last two weeks, so uh, last week was the beginning of this study, and this week we're going to continue it. Um, Throughout Leviticus 18, it doesn't say when it talks about these prohibitions for sexuality, and it begins with incest, you know, do not approach the nakedness of your near kin. Um, It's this phrase, approach the nakedness, right? The, The author of Leviticus was very careful not to use the terminology of simply do not have sex with your near kin or anything like that, but he uses this phrase, approach the nakedness. And what you see from that phrase is that there is something in the nudity of someone else that is special and holy. It's, it's, a, it's sacred, it's set apart, and it's meant for a particular context, right? So um, a lot of times we can kind of get around the sexual commandments of the Bible and say like, oh, well, you know, we're not actually having sex. We're just dot, dot, dot. Um, but these, these commandments show us that like, no, like intimacy, true sexual intimacy that God reserved for the context of marriage doesn't just begin in sex. It begins before sex and it continues inside of sex, right? So What we were discussing last week is we went back to Genesis chapter 3 to understand why it is that nakedness is so important um, today and where where we kind of went wrong. Because those of you guys who know the story of Genesis, you know that in the beginning, man and woman were created and they were naked and they were unashamed. Meaning that there's nothing intrinsically wrong with nakedness. There's There's nothing sinful or wicked about someone else's nudity um, or their beauty. That wasn't the problem. The issue was the heart of man. Right? In the beginning, man and woman were able to be naked and unashamed because there was no such thing as lust. Right? That word lust is, is thrown around a lot in the church, but basically what it means is it's, it's a selfish craving for something you don't have. Right? It's a selfish craving for something you don't have. And so before the fall... 
there was a mutuality in the loving relationship that man and woman shared with one another, meaning that uh, there was a joyous giving and receiving that was taking place in their relationship. But after the fall, all of a sudden, there was no more giving and receiving. All of a sudden, there was a taking. And that's what's happened to our sexuality today. Now, the lust that's in my heart causes me to crave to take from other women what doesn't belong to me for my own selfish gratification. And because of that, there is a need. There is a need for clothing in our world because of the wickedness of my lustful heart and your lustful heart. Right? We all fell in this instance. But tonight, what we're going to be discussing is we're going to be discussing the idea of the actual context of the clothing that Adam and Eve put on. Meaning that the clothing that Adam and Eve put on after the fall, it actually wasn't because of lust. That's what it's turned into, but that wasn't the original cause. And so we're going to discuss that tonight. So if you have your Bibles, flip them open to Genesis 3. We're going to read a little section out of that, and we're going to discuss this idea of nakedness, not only physical, but emotional. And let's, let's pray uh, for this time in the Word. Father, we thank you that we can be here tonight. We do lift up our pastors, Scott and Bo, that uh, whatever illnesses that they're going through right now, that you'd be with them, that you would uh, grant them a speedy recovery, and that they would be able to be with us soon. We ask that this would be a, an awesome time in your word, that we'd be able to meditate on these truths that you have for us, God, that it would influence and impact the way that we relate to those around us, and it would impact the way that we relate to you, God, which is the most important thing. Father, we praise you for your grace and your mercy, and in your name, amen. If you've made it to Genesis 3, we're, we're going to be in verse 6. Okay, so let's, let's read this. And, and just to give you guys a little context for you guys who aren't too familiar with this story, um, God has put man and woman in the Garden of Eden. Everything is perfect. There is no sin. There is no death. There is nothing wrong with it. It is very, very good, as God put it. Uh, it's, it's emphatic. It is very um, free from any type of uh, fall or uh, spot or blemish or any type of wrongness whatsoever. But in the midst of this perfection, God placed a tree, and he called it the knowledge of good and evil. And he told man and woman, don't eat of this tree. And the reason why he tells them that is because he says, I want to be the standard for good and evil. I want you to trust me, right? But if you don't want to trust me, if you want to make up for yourself what you think is good and evil, then Here's this tree, and you could eat of it, and you can decide for yourself. And so the serpent, who we know to be Satan, comes and he deceives Eve. And he says, you know, don't you want to eat of this tree? And she says, no, like God says, that if we eat of it, we'll die. And he says, you're not going to die if you eat of it. In fact, you're going to be like God, discerning both good and evil for yourself. And that appealed to her, right? Satan planted a doubt in her heart that maybe God doesn't really have my best interest in mind, and maybe I can figure out for myself better than God can um, in his commandments for me. And so she eats, and so does Adam. And in verse 6, it says this, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree 
of which I commanded that you should not eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Okay, so this is the initial reasoning, the initial cause of why you and I wear clothing today. Right? Uh, me and Bo were talking about it last week, how odd it is that the human race is the only race on this planet that wears clothes. I mean, that's, this, isn't that weird? You know, we don't think it's weird because we've always done it. But, you know, if, if you look around the world, we're the only beings that wear clothing. It's very odd. But if you see, the, the initial cause of the clothing was not fear or lust. The cause of the clothing was shame. Meaning there was a time before they ate of this fruit that there was a confidence in their nakedness before one another. They were able to be totally vulnerable with one another in every single way, physical, emotional, spiritual, every level. Adam and Eve shared complete vulnerability and nakedness in their relationship. And, you know, just a sidetrack, but isn't that really what all of us want? Perfect vulnerability with another human being with perfect confidence and assurance? That'd be amazing. Right? But right here, it's broken. And what's the cause of the brokenness? It's shame. Not towards necessarily, there, there is some towards themselves, but it's mainly towards what the other person thinks of them. I mean, they become insecure. They become ashamed of their nakedness and fearful of the judgment of the person with them. They're also fearful of the abuse that the other person can inflict on them with their vulnerability. We see that happen in a very brutal way where God confronts Adam and this woman who's been with him since they've been alive, right, trusted him in every single way, is thrown under the bus by her husband in a moment of selfishness, right, to try to get out of blame. And it's amazing and so sad to see that this is how it all began, that all of a sudden the trust that existed between the man and the woman is broken and shattered, where they can no longer believe that each other has the best, uh, the, the other person's best interest in mind. Now all of a sudden, there's this understanding that when push comes to shove, my needs come before yours. And that's scary. That's the reason why most of us don't like to be vulnerable in front of other people. It's why social media has become the main medium in which people interact and communicate with one another, whether it is through texting or whether it is through uh, chatting. I don't, I don't really use social media, so forgive me if my vernacular sucks, but, you know, like it's, you know, through posting or whatever people do on Facebook or Instagram or however that works. But the majority of communication now happens on that type of medium. And it's really interesting. There's this woman uh, named Sherry Turkle. She's written a bunch of articles on this. And um, she, when social media and the internet first started coming out in the late 90s, she wrote an article praising social media and how it was going to be an amazing tool to bring together humanity in true vulnerability and safety, where she said, man, what a great tool there is that we can now reach out to one another at any time of the day, in any circumstance, be real with one another and find safety and security in another's embrace, right? Isn't that amazing? And then you know, 18 years later, she reviewed her statement. She says, man, I was wrong, right? I was wrong. And she said, now I see that social media and technology has become a mask that everybody wears and actually keeps people at an arm's length as opposed to letting them in, right? And she talked to a couple of teenagers, and I think one teenager hit it on the head of why social media is so um, appealing to us, to all of us, not just the younger generation, 
But she was talking to him. She says, what, why did it, why, what's so bad about having a conversation, like sitting down and just talking to a girl? Because she was talking to him about like asking a girl out on a date, and he said he did it through text. And she was like, what? Like, you can't just like talk to her? And he's like, someday I would like to have a conversation with a woman, but not today. And she said, why? He says, well, conversations happen too fast. You can't edit. You can't delete. You can't make things sound exactly as you want them to be. Right? And in there, isn't that so insightful for like a 15-year-old to say? It's like, it's amazing. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, when I'm with another person, I'm communicating with them, I have this deep insecurity of being judged. And when I'm behind my computer screen, it gives me a particular safe distance at which I can communicate to people without fear of judgment. Right? I can Photoshop my pictures. I can amend my statements. I can make my life look exactly as I want it to look in front of everybody else. It gives me a measure of safety so I don't have to be, quote-unquote, naked in front of other people. You guys get that? That is what has happened to us as a species. That's what humanity has. So I'm not blaming social media. I don't think the social media is the devil. I don't think it's wrong or anything like that. I believe that like everything else on this earth, social media and the internet are, are beautiful in themselves, but the corruptness of the heart of man has twisted them and made them something that they shouldn't be. Right? Instead of being a tool, as Sherry Turkle saw it in the beginning, of unity and vulnerability and encouragement and help and compatibility, it's become a tool of deceit. And that is why it's become so bad. For the next little bit, what I want to talk about is I want to talk about the importance of vulnerability, though. Like, what was really lost in the Garden of Eden, and what, what really has it done to us as, uh, as a species? So in every relationship, there is a deep need for vulnerability. And there's several reasons for that. And by the way, the level of vulnerability that you display to another person should go up or ought to go up as the relationship gets closer and closer. In fact, without vulnerability, relationships cannot get closer. By definition, they can't. The relationships that don't have any vulnerability or they don't require you to take risks are not true friendships. They are Facebook friends, right? They're people who know about you, they know of you, but they don't know you. They don't really know everything that is going on in your life. They don't see all the idiosyncrasies and all the weaknesses and the frailties that's within your life. And because of that, they don't actually know you. In fact, a lot of times when we're building or cultivating relationships, there's always this fear in the back of our head of, if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. If you really knew all there was to me, you wouldn't stick around. And so we have to play games, right, when we're, when we're hanging out with people. We can't really let people know how serious we are about them or how much we love them. We have to kind of lie or we have to kind of uh, shimmy the truth a little bit because we're afraid, we're deeply afraid of the other person judging our vulnerability or taking that vulnerability that we've given to them and using it to harm us. Because the more vulnerability you show to someone else, the more capacity and power they have to really devastate you. Right? I always use this example when I'm driving down the road and happens once a week usually, you know, someone gives me the finger or, you know, cusses me out or says I'm a loser. It really doesn't bother me that much. You know, there might be a moment where I'm like, ah, oh, gosh, I hate that person. But it, like it goes away in a second. The reason why it goes away in a second is because there's nothing that there's nothing in that relationship with that person. I don't know them. I don't know them. They don't know me. 
right? So their opinion of me means nothing. I'm like, well, you don't know me. So, you know, you think I'm a loser because I made one wrong move in traffic. So, I, you know, it doesn't really bother me. When someone I'm close to, though, calls me a loser or makes fun of me, it devastates me because they know me and they have seen my vulnerability. And now I know they're judging not just something superficial, but they're judging something real. And that is terrifying to us. But as I said before, unless you let someone in and unless you allow that vulnerability to show, the relationship can't grow past anything but superficiality anyway. Right? There's a deep importance to vulnerability. You know, I usually bring this up to people in the church as kind of like a, uh, a problem with the church because if you guys understand this point, this is one of the most important points of Christianity Everything that Jesus Christ has done for me and you, filling us with his spirit, dying for our sins, rising again, promising to come again to get us, everything that he's done has been for the attempt, for the purpose of the one day fulfilled prophecy that we will return to Eden. So everything that's happening in my life and yours is supposed to be returning me to an Eden in my own community and society. That's the goal of the church. And so the, the issue is inside the church is that we should be people that are growing in vulnerability, growing in, in our ability to express our true selves to one another without judgment or fear, and to be able to encourage one another without shame. But the church is not immune to what's happened in our culture. The church, as a matter of fact, has become one of the most clothed societies in the world. Meaning that the church, because of our legalism and our pride and our arrogance, we tend to be the first type of people that would judge someone else for something that they do. And so because of that, everybody in the church is more afraid of being vulnerable, not less. And that is not good. That's not a good thing. That's never what Jesus intended when he designed his church. He designed his church to be a place of vulnerability. And he did everything he could to make sure that it would be a place of vulnerability. I was bringing this up to people, but Jesus said, I came for the sick, not the well. For well people don't need a physician. That means that when Jesus built his bride, he built his church, he built it made out of sick people. Meaning that we're kind of like a hospital. And it's very odd that a bunch of people who know that we're sick and we know that we need a savior can't be honest of, as to the reasons of why we need a Savior, right? We all sit in here, and we, we're like, yeah, you know, it's just assumed that everyone here needs a Savior, but if I were to come and talk to one of you or you were to talk to me, I would be deeply afraid to tell you the specifics of why I need a Savior, right? And to be like, oh, this is why I need a Savior, because I do this stuff, because I look at these things, because I struggle with this, because I do that because I've done this, right? Those are the things that I'm really afraid to share. We become closed off. And usually when I ask people, when I say, you know, where are your, who are your best friends? The vast majority of the church doesn't actually name someone who's in their fellowship, right? Now, the reason why we don't is because, again, let's be real. When I was a teenager, my best friends weren't in the church, and here's the reason why. is because I was doing things that I was ashamed of, 
And I was especially ashamed of those things in the body of Christ. And so I hung around people and became more intimate with people who didn't know God and therefore wouldn't judge me for what I was doing. But that didn't have a good effect on my life. When you hang around a community that approves of a particular behavior, you have no motivation to change. In fact, you have a motivation to become just like them, which is more often than not worse. So for a lot of us, when we've cut off vulnerability in the church because of our fear of being judged, what we've essentially done is we've guaranteed that our repentance and regeneration that Jesus intends for your life and my life won't actually grow. The other problem with it is because there is a, we have a need for community as human beings. We need it. It's not something that we desire. It's something that we absolutely positively need in the foundation of our being. In fact, being understood and being loved, feeling understood and feeling loved is fundamental to your ability to trust yourself, to care about yourself, and to not slip into depression, anxiety, or massive amounts of uh, despair. People can live with a lot of, without a lot of things. This is something that I learned um, in my time in the military. You know, I did two tours to Afghanistan, and, and both times, you know, I... The, the first time I went over there, I spent uh, uh, a whole month living in a hole that I dug. And, uh, you know, I didn't have running water. I didn't have food. I didn't have toilets. I didn't have, you know, music. I didn't have family. I didn't, I didn't have a lot of the things that I take for granted, right? And um, I was fine. You know, I was fine. In fact, I was also in a combat zone, meaning I was getting shot at and stuff on a daily basis. And still, I was fine. And most of my friends were fine. I mean, we had our issues, but we definitely weren't suicidal at that point. Most veterans commit suicide when they come home, not when they're overseas. And a lot of people wonder why, and this is why. Like I said, there are a lot of things that we think we need that we don't actually need, but there is one thing that you need, you and I need more than anything else. We need to feel understood and loved. When veterans come home, they leave a society where they feel understood, and they enter into a society that doesn't understand them. And when you go home and you feel like a stranger in your own house and you feel judged by the people that used to love you the most, it could be a very tempting option to take your own life. Right? Because when you're, when you're overseas with your buddies and you're talking about the stuff that you're doing, you're talking about the, the, the firefights and the people that are dying and stuff like that, you, you get a very sick, weird sense of humor when you're in an environment like that when it comes to death and mortality and things to that nature. I won't tell you stories, but you, know, you can get a very sick sense of humor. Then you come home and you tell those same stories to your family and friends and they look at you with shock and awe. And all of a sudden you feel very condemned. Right? We need to feel understood and loved. But in order to do that, you need to be vulnerable. You need to show people what's actually going on. You know, most teenagers today, what's their, probably one of their number one complaints, no one understands me, right? And that leads them to massive amounts of depression. Now they say that because what they, what they think, what they believe is they think that no one actually cares about what's going on in their life and no one actually understands what they're going through. And because of that, they feel ostracized, they feel alone, and that leads to depression and despair. It's not good, right? If you come to church and you feel more alone and ostracized than you are outside of the church, there's something wrong with this church. You guys get that? There's something the matter with us. There's something that needs to be changed in this body. 
There needs to be a level where we can understand one another. Hey, I might not fully understand whatever it is you're struggling with or going through, but I know enough to know I'm not better than you. And I know enough to know that I can relate to you on some level. And I know enough to know that our pain and our struggles and our temptation should be something that unifies us more than it is that divides us. The trauma that my friends and I went through in Afghanistan ironically built a bond that is unbreakable even to this day. Shared trauma, grief, and pain can bring people together if we're willing to share and talk about it. And I'm not just talking about sin anymore, because sin is tough to share, but what I've found in my time as a minister is that as difficult as it is to admit to actual sin issues in your life before other people, it is doubly difficult to admit to things like sadness, grief, depression, worry, anxiety, especially in the church. Because here is the place where you're going to be most judged for feeling these things. You tell someone in the church, man, I'm stressed out about this. Well, have you been praying? You've been reading your Bible? Because if you were reading your Bible, you wouldn't be stressed out. You know, it says in the Bible, it says right here, it says the man, you will keep in perfect peace, the one who has fixed his eyes on you. So your eyes must not be fixed on Jesus, and that's the problem, right? It's like, okay, you, you might be true. That might be a right. You're right. You're right. You know, my eyes aren't fixed on Jesus. But maybe I, I don't need you to rebuke my faith at this point. Maybe I need you to just listen to me and just maybe empathize a little bit you know, and not act like a jerk, you know, maybe stuff like that, that might be more helpful than you saying that to me, right? Or man, you know, like, it grieves me as a pastor when someone goes through intense amounts of grief in the church, and people sell them weak answers, meaning instead of just coming alongside that person and listening to them, they just, they just give them, like, weak answers. They're just like, hey, you know, like, heaven's coming, you know, you know and uh, that person's in a better place, and it's all right. And, you know, and I get why you're doing that, because you, you, you don't want to feel uncomfortable in that moment. But don't you realize that if you were to just sit with that person and, I don't know, weep with those who weep, you would find a deep amount of intimacy and vulnerability that would unite the two of you in a beautiful way. Because as you see them crying, you'll realize there are things in your life Again, it might not be exactly the same, but there's probably a lot of similarities and stuff that you've gone through. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all comfort and Father of all mercies, who comforts us in our tribulation, understand this, so that we might comfort others with the same comfort that was afforded to us. Right? There's a reason why you go through the things that you go through. And there's a reason why you struggle with the sins that you struggle with. God has left it in your life to build vulnerability and intimacy within his body. And when we miss that, the church becomes weak and ineffective. Right? A lot of times, what we don't understand because we live in America is that the early church... It's like, yeah, the, the people went to the early church to, to understand the Bible and to get theology, and they, they went to church because they, they wanted to understand how to share their faith better. All true, right? But don't you realize the main reason that people went to church in the first century was because they were being severely persecuted? Don't you know that the reason why they went to church was because church was the only place where they felt safe? 
because everywhere else in the world they were being hunted down. Right? The main purpose of the church was to build up the church. Galatians 6 verse 1, when you are overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Right? You can't bear someone's burden unless you know what it is. Right? We cannot fulfill the law of Christ unless we're willing to be vulnerable with one another. Right? Intimate. And in our friendships. Now, I do want to balance this a little bit. Okay, because there are some dangers to vulnerability. There are. Okay. The first one is that I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you need to find everybody in this church today and unload all your issues to them tonight, right? If you're going to be a real Christian. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the natural evolution of relationships is increased vulnerability. And if you want your relationships in the body to be more impactful, you have to be willing to open up. Doesn't mean that you have to open up to everybody, right? But it means that there should be some people in this body that you trust enough to share about the stuff that you're going through. Right? That's part of the fellowship. That's part of the reason why we have it. Right? If you did just go out and just like, hey, let me tell you about all my issues, right? First of all, you'd 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 be probably kind of a drag to be around. <laughs> Um, you know, I hate to say it, but the second thing is that you, you probably would be setting yourself up. Now, not probably, you would be setting yourself up for abuse. Meaning if you put yourself in vulnerable situations with people that you don't know, you are setting yourself up for potential abuse. Whether that person's going to take the things that you said to them and gossip about you, or whether they're going to take that information and use it against you one day, or whatever, right? You don't, you don't know. Um, if you don't know someone at all, sharing with them that level of intimacy can be a bad idea. Now, it is important to build uh, a foundation before you start speaking these things to them. It also helps you know the level that people can understand. Right? Because like I said, you know, I'm willing to share with you guys that there was trauma that's happened to me in my past, but I'm not going to get into the gory details on this pulpit. The reason is because it might really mess you up if you heard the stuff that I saw. Right? It really might torque you if I started getting into the details with you. There are some people that can hear those details in my life, and I know them, but some people can't, right? And that's okay, right? I don't expect everyone to be at the place where they could just hear everything that's gone on in my life and be okay with it, right? But over time, when I get closer to people, I get to understand what they can take and what they can't. To put it another way, I start to learn how to build boundaries in my relationships, which is healthy to do to have particular boundaries in the relationships that you have, okay? The other thing that I want to say is that there's an issue with our heart, and I've already been saying this, but sometimes people can use vulnerability to entrap people. This is what I mean. A lot of us would not just get physically naked in public, right? A lot of us wouldn't do that because we're a little uncomfortable. Let's be real. You know, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with my body. I'm a little ashamed of certain things about my body. I wouldn't want just everybody seeing it, right? That's, that's really intimidating to happen. But there are some people that are totally okay with just posting themselves naked online, right, for everyone to see. And you'd be like, well, what, what's with these people? That's what, this is what, <laughs> what's with those people. They've learned to use their exposure to get attention, Okay. 
meaning that they've learned, I don't, know, I don't know where it happened or when it happened, but they've learned to use their nudity to get attention from other people. And you could do that physically or you could do that emotionally, meaning that there are those people that will go around and they'll share, right? Every single time you talk to them, they're just like, man, and they just launch into something. And you're like, gosh. And, and what you realize over time is that they're pity hungry, Right? They want attention so badly that they share things with you in order so that you'll pay attention to them. Right? That's the only way they know how to get attention. They also do that, some of them do this, because they have a, a deep codependent problem in their heart, meaning that they, they like to have intimacy with people, they like to have nearness with people, but they don't know how to do it, and so they skip five steps to get to the place of intimacy. So for instance, you know, you just meet someone, you just, you know, you go on a first date with someone and all of a sudden they're talking about how much they love you and how they can't wait to spend the rest of your life with you. And you're just like, that's a little awkward. You know, I just met you. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not ready for that step yet. The reason why they do that is because they're trying to skip steps. They don't know how to grow a relationship. They just know how to just give it all away. And what they're trying to get, what they're fishing for is they're fishing for commitment using vulnerability, right? They're, they're trying to get you to just commit to them right away. That's why they'll usually use ultimatums. Like, you know, you, you have to make this decision or else I'm going to leave you, right? They use ultimatums like that because they're afraid of being left. They're afraid of being abandoned. And so they use their vulnerability to entrap you in a relationship. And again, they could do that emotionally or physically. The people, the vast majority of people that rush into sexuality and relationships, um, it's actually people who are looking for something, not just sex. I mean, they're using their sexuality to try to get attention and commitment from someone else, right? They, they think that if I give this to you, maybe you'll give this to me, right? It's a transaction in a way, and that's, that's very sad. So uh, we, we have to understand that vulnerability is good. It's vulnerability is, is beautiful, but like everything else, it's been tainted by the human heart. And you need to be aware of where your heart is, right? You need to do the tough work of evaluating yourself. Do I have a tendency of seeking pity from other people when I share. What's my motivation when I share with this person, right? Is it just because I need to unload a bunch of stuff off my chest? Is it because I want this person to pay attention to me? Or is it because, man, I really care about this person, we have a relationship, and I want to build on this, right? Or because I genuinely need help, I genuinely need prayer or counsel in this area, and so I'm talking to you, right? That's very different than just, I need attention, and once again, you could really evaluate that is, I mean, the way that you could really evaluate it is see how you are at the end of the conversation. Meaning, if you go into a conversation and you start sharing with someone and they start giving you advice and you just ignore all of it, that probably means that you were just attention hungry and you weren't actually looking for something useful. Right? You weren't actually looking for that person to help you. You were just looking for someone to listen, basically. You were just looking for attention. Right? So we need to do that evaluation in our hearts. And again, I look at myself and I realize I have a tendency to do this. I have a tendency to share stuff that's going wrong in my life because I like attention. I like people to pay attention to me. Um, and, and a lot of times it, does, it comes off the heels of being very selfish, right? So maybe someone will share, will open themselves up a little with me, and they'll be like, man, you won't believe what's going on in my life. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's terrible. That reminds me of this, right? And I launch into my own story. Because, right? again, I'm not really interested in what you just said to me. I'm interested in you paying attention to me. Right? I, need to, I need to see that in myself and realize, man, that's wicked. I need to, I need to seek change 
in the way that I reveal myself to other people and my vulnerability. The next point that I made is uh, there's an importance to commitment. Uh, there's importance to commitment. So uh, vulnerability is good, but vulnerability is only good in the bounds of commitment. Meaning that vulnerability outside of commitment is dehumanizing. When you show someone vulnerability and you know that they could leave you at any time, depending on the level of vulnerability that you're sharing with that person, it could be very, very uh, devastating to you as, an, as a person. Right? To, to realize, man, I'm sharing all these deep personal things with this person, but first of all, it's one-sided, meaning they're not sharing back. And secondly, this person's not committed to me in any way. They could leave at any moment, right? They're not invested in my life. That could be a very, very dehumanizing thing to happen, which is why I said vulnerability is the natural evolution of relationships. As relationships grow, vulnerability should come to grow the relationship. So in a romantic relationship, which is the one that this is most pronounced in, the reason why God tells us to wait until marriage to have sex is because he's saying, do not become fully vulnerable with someone unless there is the safety of commitment to keep you there. Right? That's what he's saying. He's saying if you give yourself, if you allow yourself to be fully given over to somebody and they haven't committed to you yet, there is a deeply disturbing thing that happens in that relationship. There have been many, many articles written on cohabitation uh, and just how it doesn't work, but articles don't change anyone's mind uh, unless you already had your mind made up. But, you know, in this, art, this one article I wrote, read about cohabitation, they interviewed this woman who dated someone for seven years, and then they got married and divorced within the first. And they interviewed and said, what, why did you stick with this guy for seven years? And then you divorced him in the first year. And she had a lot of really interesting answers, but the one that stuck out to me, is she said, during our time of dating, I felt like I was in a day-in, day-out, never-ending audition to see if I was good enough to become his wife. And I realized that I was building resentment towards him in our dating this is what she means. While they were dating, because she didn't have the safety of commitment, first of all, everything she was doing with this guy was transactional, meaning she was marketing herself to see if she would be good enough. Secondly, all the vulnerability that she was sharing with him, it built resentment because there was no commitment showing, telling her that you're going to be safe. You showing me these things, you telling me these things, you doing these things with me stays between us, right? There's security for you. I will not leave you, right? And so because she was showing a vulnerability in a place without safety, she felt used and she felt like she was being mistreated, and the only reason why she stayed with him, and this is kind of sick, but it's something we all do, the only reason why she stayed with him is because her insecurity needed to prove itself, meaning that she needed to prove to herself that she was good enough to be his wife, whether or not she actually wanted to be his wife. It was more of a mountain to climb than it was something enjoyable to do. Right? Now that's, that's very sad and it's very sick, but that's, that's why God talks about the idea of commitment being the boundary for true, perfect vulnerability. If you notice in Genesis, there was no marriage in Genesis 2. You guys can read it on your own time if you want, if you don't believe me. But there is no marriage. There's no vows. Adam doesn't look at Eve and say, I vow to love and cherish you, sickness and health, to both of us part. All he does is he looks at her and he's like, man, you're good looking. 
this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You should be called woman, for you came out of me. And then God says, go make babies. And he's like, right on, you know, and that's, that's it. She doesn't even say anything, right? She gives no vows to him. And that's, that's the whole thing. And you're like, why aren't there any vows? Why is it, the reason why there's no vows is because there is no need for vows. You don't need to make vows. Vows are for people who are untrustworthy. It doesn't bode well that you and I have to make written contracts. It doesn't bode well for me as a person that I had to write out on a contract and say, I will not leave my wife, right? That, that's bad, right? If you think that that's a good thing, then I don't, I don't know what's wrong with you. Wouldn't it be better if she could just take my word for it? Right? The fact that I had to stand up in front of a, a group of my friends and family and be like, you need to hold me accountable to the stuff I'm about to say to this woman. Right? That's not good. That doesn't reflect good on me as a person. But it's what I need. Because I am fallen and I am sinful and I need that accountability and I need those people to, to see what I did and to make sure that there are consequences if I try to get out of it. Right? I need those things. Why? Because I am wicked. And that helps my wife trust me because I'm willing to do those things to show her I'm serious. Right? God had to build this idea of commitment after the fall. Now, this, this is really fascinating to me. Most people don't know this. When they talk about what was the Old Testament punishment for what we today call fornication, having sex outside of marriage, right? Adultery was death. Most people know that one. Right? So if you're married to someone, you have sex with someone who's not your wife or your husband, you are put to death. Fornication, having sex outside of marriage, actually wasn't death. I think the punishment for it is ingenious. I think we should go back to it. Because I think it's so good. I think it would change America. It would make America great again, man, if we did this. It's in Exodus 22, 16, if you want to read it on your own time. Exodus 22, verse 16. This is what the punishment was for fornication. If you had sex with someone outside of the bounds of marriage, whether you were dating or not, you as the man, right, me as the man, if I had sex with my wife outside of marriage, I would have to go to her dad, I would have to pay for the wedding, and I would have to leave it to him whether or not we would be married. So I would pay for the whole wedding. I would give him all the money for the wedding in advance, and I would say, if you want me to be your son-in-law, we'll do, you take that money and use it for the wedding. If you don't, you keep it, and I leave and never see you again. Right? That was the punishment, and I think that's awesome. Right? And by the way, if the dad said yes, that was the only type of marriage in the Old Covenant law that could not be broken by divorce. You could not divorce that person. So what God is telling his people is, be sure before you enter into this. You better be sure that this is the person for you. If you're going to skip a couple steps and not make the commitment first, be sure it's the right person because either A, you're going to lose a ton of money and you're never going to see him again, or B, you're stuck with that person for life. You cannot divorce them. Be certain. I, I think that would be amazing if, if our country adopted that. Never happened. It would never happen. But I think that would be really, really cool if, if that's what we, what we did. But the reason why God did that is, you see, he had this great emphasis on commitment. Right? He saw it as a monstrosity to separate one level of vulnerability from another level of commitment. Like, you need to be able to commit in these particular instances. Now, unfortunately, marriage, even marriage in our culture today, isn't that big of a deal, meaning that um, a lot of people still don't take marriage as being like, yeah, this is it, we're together forever. Um, in fact, a lot of people have amended their vows in our culture. I don't know if you guys have noticed that, but most people don't even say till death do us part anymore. Um, 
they just they just they say some stuff about hey I love you so much and you're awesome and this is how our dating relationship was and the end you know but there's no vows there's no like I will be with you until death. All right, so, so again, what God is saying is that there needs to be that shield of commitment before there is that ability for vulnerability. So that's that's why He puts that into His law. And the next thing I want to mention is the importance of exclusivity, meaning that. Um, when you give yourself to someone, there, like I said, there are certain levels of vulnerability that you're going to share with different people depending on how close you are with them. Just like there's different levels of physical vulnerability that you're going to be able to share with people depending on how close you are with them. What God says is that there is only one relationship on this earth that is reserved for total vulnerability, and that is marriage. It's the only relationship that's reserved for total vulnerability. Now, Exclusivity, meaning one man and one woman, right? It's special. What that does for that relationship and that vulnerability and that commitment and everything that goes inside that relationship is it makes it more precious and it makes it more sacred. Meaning this, if I, uh, well, I'll use this example because most people know it, you know, um, The Bachelor, which I think is like the worst show on TV right now. I'm sorry if you like it. I just, I hate it, but... Uh, it just depresses me. You know, when I watch it, I'm like, gosh, this is what's wrong with America. But, you know, I, I watch the show, and, you know, if you guys don't know the premise, good on you for staying pure and clean in this horrible culture. But basically what it is, it's either one man or one woman, and they have 20 people chasing after them for a couple weeks, and they slowly whittle it down to one, right? Sometimes. Sometimes they just reject everybody, right? And if you, if you got 20 people throwing your, themselves at you, and you can't find one, there's something wrong with you, right? But um, you know, so they, they have these people competing for them during these weeks, and they, they slowly whittle it down. And uh, the issue that you see, that the thing that makes me, like, so sickened by this whole concept is when it gets to the top three, right, he's usually the person's really serious about them. And they're, they'll look at them and be like, I love you so much. You're the one for me. You're amazing. And they even have the opportunity to have sex with them, all three of those people, before they make their final choice. And I'm like, gosh, man, if you had sex with someone and then they sent you home, how would you not think that th this is why, right? You know, like, obviously I did something wrong. You know, it would just, oh, gosh, it would ruin the entire experience, right? What God intended to be beautiful and holy, you've now made common and disgusting. But at any rate, you know, so they're saying these things of, I love you, you're the only one for me. But then they'll go on a date with the second person, they'll say the same stuff. And what it, what it does to you is it makes you realize your words mean nothing, right? You can't look at someone and say, I love you, you're the one for me, and then look to the next person and say the same thing and be honest both times. You're either lying to one or you're lying to both, but you're not telling the truth to both people. The reason why exclusivity is so important in marriage, the reason why God said one man, one woman, and not one man, ten women, or ten women and, you know, uh, one uh, woman and ten men is because he understood there is a preciousness to exclusivity. If you want a relationship to be beautiful, it needs those boundaries and it needs that exclusivity to know that it's special and unique beyond anything else. That's, that's, I, I keep using the word sacred, holy, things like that. If you guys don't know what that means, it just means set apart. That's all it means, right? So in a way, my marriage is holy because it's set apart. There's no one else on this planet that I interact with the way that I interact with Emma, my wife. We have a physical and emotional intimacy that is not touched by anyone, including my parents. 
Nobody's going to touch that. No one's going to enter into that circle. I will open up more and more with different people in my life, but I will never open up as much as I do with my wife, physically or emotionally, ever, or at least I shouldn't. Right Now, here's the issue. In our culture, this, because we've bought into this idea that gender is not important anymore and there's, there's no distinctions, um, there's this idea that men and women can treat each other exactly the same and there's not going to be any issues. Here's the problem with that. Like I said, God designed, he designed and intended the marriage relationship to be special and that means that it's going to be exclusive if I went out and I started just talking to different women and opening up with them on the same level I open up with Emma, what it's going to do, naturally, because God designed me this way, is it's going to cause an emotional dependency and intimacy to develop that was intended only for marriage, right? And it will be wrong. A lot of times when I'm counseling men, because I obviously work with men and women when it comes to sexual morality, it, it, surpri it would surprise you guys. It would shock you guys to find out how many of the affairs are actually physical. I mean, most affairs that I counsel, they weren't even physical. They were just emotion and an emotional dependency developed between two people that was inappropriate, and it led to the downfall of the marriage because the exclusivity was broken. Right? There is a need to safeguard particular relationships, and that means that, hey, men and women, nothing wrong with having... If you're a man, nothing wrong with having female friends. If you're a woman, nothing wrong with having male friends. The Bible encourages us to do so. But what it means is that you need to be careful with the amount of emotional vulnerability that you show that person. Right? And somebody might say, well, I'm single right now, so that doesn't apply to me. Well, if you want to get married one day, it does apply to you. Okay? Because if you cultivate a bunch of relationships with a bunch of different people where you're super emotionally dependent and vulnerable with them, what happens when you get married? when you start dating someone, you're going to look at all the, you're gonna have to look at all those people and be like, ah, no more. But most people don't do that, by the way. And usually it ends up destroying the relationship. Right? It destroys the relationship because, again, the exclusivity is broached and the relationship doesn't grow as a result. Trust is shattered. It doesn't work that way. Okay, now, to bring this all home, I just want to share the idea that there is deep intimacy with Jesus. In Hebrews 4, it says that the word of God is word of God is a sword and sharper than I mean the word of God is living and active is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it says that we stand before God naked, right? All things are laid before Him naked, to whom we must give an account. Meaning that there is a God already sees all of your vulnerability. Now here's here's why that's beautiful. God already sees all your vulnerability, and yet He died for you anyway. That's why Paul in Romans 5, he says, if while we were yet sinners, Christ died on our behalf, how much more will we be saved by his life? He's making an argument from the greater to the lesser. He's saying, if while you were at your worst and Jesus saw you at your worst, he was still willing to die for you. This shows you that A, God is all in in his relationship with you. Meaning that Jesus, in a way, became naked before we did. Man, he became vulnerable in ways that we can't even understand, crucified on your behalf to show you how dedicated he is to you. I love Revelation 3, verse 20, where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone opens the door, I will, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. Beautiful passage, beautiful verse. But 
a lot of people miss the gravity of what's being said there. The God of the entire universe, the one who made everything, who is all-powerful and could do whatever he wants, puts himself in the vulnerable position and sits outside your heart waiting for you to let him in. Isn't that nuts? God could do whatever he wants, but he chooses to allow you to have free will. He could say, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you don't open, I'm coming in. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, you can't stop him, right? If he wanted to come into your heart, man, he's coming, you know, one way or the other. But he chooses. He chooses to give you that right to choose because he wants to develop a loving relationship where you are both naked and unashamed. Now, to the level you understand that is the level that you're going to be able to be honest with God in your relationship with him. A lot of Christians, myself included, struggle with our honesty before God. Meaning we don't like to share what's going on in our lives with him. Usually when I fall to a sin or I struggle with a sin, I just try to tough it out. I try to white knuckle it and try to get out of it on my own. And then I either end up falling and I'm ashamed for a couple days and then I come back to God and act like nothing happened. Or maybe if I'm on a good day, I'll actually come before him and apologize and ask for forgiveness. But a lot of times I keep him at arm's length when I'm struggling with things. Now it's really odd. It's really, really bizarre that I would do that. It says in the Bible that God is near to the brokenhearted and those who are destitute. Just as our brokenness can draw us closer to one another, did you know that your brokenness can draw you closer to God if you allow him to be in it? Paul, when he was suffering in Philippians chapter 3, he says, when he talks about his suffering, he says, that I may know him and the fellowship of his suffering. That's a radical phrase. Paul says, you know what? Jesus, when he's described in the Old Testament, he's described as a man acquainted with sorrows, right? A man of sorrow, acquainted with griefs. If you want to get intimate with a person who describes themselves as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, you might have to go through some grief. Now, you really want to know Jesus? You really want to know his heart? How are you going to understand Jesus unless you understand what it's like to be rejected by your own? Because he was. How are you going to understand Jesus unless you know what it's like to be abused? Because he was. Right, how are you going to understand Jesus unless you know what it's like to be laughed at and mocked? Because he was. Even your death will bring you closer to Jesus than you've ever been. Right? Everyone wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die, but that's the only way to get there. Right? And right after that, Paul says that I might be made like him in his death, that I could become like him in his resurrection. He says, man, I want to know Jesus. I want to know him. And whatever that takes, whether it's good times or bad times, let them in, because Jesus is worthy. And so... Our vulnerability with Jesus is beautiful because that commitment's already woven in. When God is talking to his people back in the Old Testament in Isaiah, they're complaining because they're like, God, you don't really understand us. You don't really know us. How could there be vulnerability? You don't know us. And God says to them, he, we, they didn't understand what he meant, but we do today. He says to them, he says, can a bride forget her wedding gown on the day of her wedding? He says, so I have not forgotten you. Behold, I have written you on the palms of my hand. Right now, that, the word, actually, it's translated in a lot of your Bibles as written, but the word actually means to carve something in your hand. 
Back in the day, there was a practice where slaves were branded by their masters, sometimes with a hot iron, sometimes with a knife. They would actually scar them to show that, that was they, you were their property. But never, ever, ever in that day did a master take a brand for his slave. What God is saying is, I'm taking a brand for you. We didn't understand what it was, but now we do. It says that in Jesus' resurrected body, there's one thing that he keeps alive, and that is the scars on his wrists that denote what he did for you. The vulnerability that we show God, it's something that we can have safety in because we know what he did for us. Beyond that, once you realize that you have the approval of the only one in this universe whose voice really matters, it will allow you to be open with other people because you know what? No matter how safe you are in relationships, people will still hurt you. Guaranteed. No matter how close you get to someone, they will hurt you. And unless you have a greater security in Jesus and a greater, a greater source of identity in his words about you, you won't be able to show that level of vulnerability with someone without massive amounts of fear. Right? The only one who really sees you for who you are, he sees you to the blackest night of your soul, and he loves you to the stars. Right? When you let that sink in, man, you could, you could go out and you could be vulnerable with people and you could build relationships with people without shame, which is exactly what we're trying to get back to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you did for us, God, that you did pay the ultimate price that we might have life. Lord, and I confess my own issues in this, in this area, that I know that I'm not as vulnerable with people as I need to be. And I know even in the times of my vulnerability, I could do it for selfish reasons. Father, please forgive us for the shame that we carry. And please help us to receive from you that perfect forgiveness that you offer to us on the cross. Help us to accept it and help us to learn how to grow and cultivate beautiful relationships inside of this body that we might build one another up and bear each other's burdens in a way that honors and glorifies you. Father, help us to build greater intimacy in our relationship with you, most importantly, that we begin to know what, it, what it's like to be held and comforted by the one who has experienced all the pain first. Lord, thank you for what you've done for us. In your name, amen.